take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this evening to the book of 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, just the first four verses. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the living God. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is the word of the living God, and let us now say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. And now, O Lord, once more we ask that in this brief time, the preaching of the word of Christ would be his word to his sheep. Convict us, counsel us, guide us, we pray. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1597, Francis Bacon wrote the famous words, or perhaps quite famous words, quote, knowledge is power. Many people have made interpretations and use of that statement. One scholar recently in a medical journal wrote these words regarding Francis Bacon and his statement. Quote, he most likely wanted to transmit the idea that having and sharing knowledge is the cornerstone of reputation and influence and therefore power. All achievements emanate from this. End quote. We're not here tonight to discuss the various interpretation of Bacon's statement, which we've all heard. Knowledge is power. However, In 2 Peter, we read of knowledge and we read of power. But the knowledge and the power mentioned here is not that we might bring about reputation and influence for ourselves, but rather that the knowledge of Christ will bring about changes in us. 2 Peter is often debated. It's debated in the sense of who wrote it. I'm just going to submit to you as we move along that the first two words of this book of Holy Scripture say Simon Peter. So we're going to take in faith that it is Peter, that disciple of Christ, who not only wrote first Peter, but second Peter. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant or slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he's writing these words to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. In other words, Along with me and the other apostles, there are many of you, recipients of this letter, who have received, you have obtained a precious faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then there's a phrase that he uses in verse 2 that is actually used multiple times in the letter. He says in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then here it is. 
in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We won't count the references tonight, but if you were to do that in the week ahead, you would see multiple times that 2 Peter is full of references to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And contrary to the interpretation of the phrase, knowledge is power, the message here is not having knowledge so that you might bring about reputation and influence for yourself. But every time that it is mentioned, it's this knowledge of Christ that is bringing about, it's used of God to bring about changes in us. Scholars debate, of course, the background of this letter. It's clear, given the things that are addressed, that there were false teachers. If you flip over to chapter 2 and chapter 3, you will see a discussion of these false teachers. In just a moment, by God's grace, we'll look at a few of their false ideologies But Peter is writing to contradict false teachers who likely would have had some kind of teaching along the lines of early Gnosticism. The idea that there must be special knowledge. And Peter wants to level the playing field that it is knowledge of Christ that brings about a holy life. It brings about an increase of grace and peace. And it is knowledge of Christ that actually conforms you into the image of of God, such that Peter can say it's through the knowledge of Christ that we become partakers of the divine nature. So in this sense, knowledge actually is power, but not the way that the world thinks. I want us to look at three specific examples of the knowledge of Christ as we walk through these verses and really the entire letter of three chapters. The first thing that we see is this. Knowledge of Christ brings grace and peace. Knowledge of Christ brings grace and peace. Look at the second verse of chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now I know that as you and I read letters of Scripture, sometimes if we're not careful in our reading, we skip over these introductory remarks. You know how sometimes at the end of letters we'll skip over the names? At the beginning of letters, we can think, let me get into the meat. Okay, I got it. Greetings, grace and peace, all of that. But notice how grace and peace are multiplied to the people who have obtained like precious faith with the apostles. It's multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. John Gill, the particular Baptist or Reformed Baptist, if you will, of the 1700s, writing on this text, says these words, quote, by a multiplication of grace may be meant a larger discovery of the love and favor of God, which, though it admits of no degrees in itself, being never more or less in God's heart, yet, as to the manifestations of it, it is different, and capable of being increased, and drawn out to a greater length. And he continues and says, And by a multiplication of peace especially an increase of spiritual peace, a fullness of joy and peace in believing, arising from a sense of free justification by Christ's righteousness and a full pardon and atonement by his blood and sacrifice. End quote. You see what Gill is saying? It's not as though there's more grace and peace or there's more knowledge that God must have or grow in. 
But that our experience of grace and peace and the walk of faith can be increased as we grow in knowledge of Christ. Growing in knowledge of Christ provides for us an increase in our understanding of his grace and a sense of peace. Now notice Peter's urgency and connection to the word knowing as he continues. Look down at verse 12. Peter writes this. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent or body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Peter is saying to the recipients of this letter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is something I want you to know before you die. And I don't want you to forget it. I want you to understand the glories of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want you to know him. I want you to savor him. I want you to come to understand that as you study him, as you reflect on him, as you pray to him, as you meditate on his glorious gospel, That virtue in your life will be increased. And as false teachers come your way and offer you other kinds of knowledge, I don't want you to forget to the day that I die, Peter says, that Christ and knowledge of him brings a greater understanding of grace and peace in your life. There's an urgency here for Peter. He continues as he discusses the trustworthiness of this knowledge that comes through The word of Christ. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And again, as we read these various passages, think how many times the word know or knowledge is used. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Knowledge of Christ brings an increase of grace and peace. He then says, and soon I will leave this earthly tent. But until my dying day, until I breathe my last, I want you to understand that knowledge of Christ is the center of our walk. And you can trust this knowledge because it came directly from the Holy Spirit. That's how trustworthy it is. As an aside, and this is perhaps another entire sermon, but look at verse 21. This is a key text for us as we think about what Scripture is. And I just don't want us to miss this before we move on. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. If you've read our confession of faith or the accompanying catechism, you will have almost word for word a discussion of this passage. What is the Bible, brothers and sisters? 
It is a collection of 66 books. Who wrote the Bible? Well, if you were a child in our catechism class, immediately you're thinking, holy men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's just 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. That's what Holy Scripture is. God the Holy Spirit inspiring men to write exactly what they wanted to write, but exactly what the triune God wanted to have written. When you take up the Word of God in your hand, you have the very voice of Christ by His Spirit to you. Well, this adds weight then to the knowledge that we receive from this word. So what is Peter saying? Number one, as we go back to verse two, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Your experience of grace, your experience of peace can be multiplied to you as you study and savor the Savior. Knowledge of Christ brings grace and peace. So brothers and sisters. Are you thinking about your walk with Christ in the days ahead? Are you thinking about ways in which your walk with Christ is lacking? Maybe you're thinking of ways in which in the past week your walk with Christ has been successful. Let me encourage you to think about 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, and to consider that our walk with the Savior in the pages of His Word as we hear His voice in public worship and as we read and meditate on it during the week is the chief means that He will use to increase our experience of His grace and peace in our lives. Study and savor the Savior. Get to know the Shepherd Hear his voice in the pages of his word. Hear him address the various angles and avenues of your life. Are you tempted? Do you tend to move towards a despair? Is God's grace going to be great enough to handle this sin? In this current circumstance in my life, can God bring me peace? Peter will say, grace and peace and your experience of it can be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. What circumstance is there over which you are tempted to think that the living Christ is distant? You need only reflect on the fact that he, the King of kings and Lord of lords, with a word calmed the stormy seas. Maybe you think that there is an illness or a trial. You need only think, and as you see the work of the Savior in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of how he raised up the sick. What illness is there? What trial is there in your life this week over which the living Christ cannot but say one word and hold and direct all things? You want to grow in peace? Savor Christ. You want to grow in your experience of how rich His grace is? You want it to be multiplied to you? Know Christ in the pages of His word. Knowledge of Christ brings grace and peace. But secondly, knowledge of Christ provides all things necessary for godly living. Knowledge of Christ provides all things necessary for godly living. Look at verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now, notice the connection there. It is the divine power that has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But what is the means? 
There it is again. Through the knowledge of Him. In verse 2, grace and peace are multiplied. How? Through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, what is it that is the means by the power of God to bring about our life and godliness in our walk? It is the knowledge of Christ. It's through the knowledge of Him that we have the means of growing in godliness. And compare this with the quote-unquote knowledge that is mentioned of the false teachers. Let me just give you a sampling that Peter addresses in this letter of the false knowledge of these false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 10. They teach people to reject authority. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. He's condemning the false teachers and he describes them in this way in verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Boy, don't we live in that day? Despise authority. There is a rejection of authority. Or how about the teaching of immorality? Look over at verse 13 through 19 of chapter 2. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. These false teachers, living lives of immorality, have infiltrated the church, and they've been allowed, evidently, to stay there. And listen to the description of these false teachers. Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. This is not a friendly description. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, if you're not familiar with that last sentence, it's a story that happened in the Old Testament. Verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The false knowledge of these false teachers is to reject authority, to live in immorality, lust, and adultery. Here's another example of their teaching in chapter 3. They deny that Christ will return. They deny that Christ will return. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts and saying... Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is, where is Christ coming? You say Christ is coming, Christians, but where is he? We have special knowledge. We're teaching you a better way. Christ is not coming. You could go on. But in the face of this false knowledge, how are people, how are believers to grow in godly living? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, it's through the knowledge of Him who called us. It's through the knowledge of Christ that we have provided for us the path to godly living. Notice in chapter 1, verse 5, following our text, 
various ways, knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ, and knowledge of Christ's promises cascade into verse 5 and following. And listen to what verses 5 and following say. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness. Boys and girls, have you ever had your mom or dad tell you, be self-controlled, control yourself? This is a good and godly message. We need to learn this lesson. Knowledge of Christ brings with it a call to virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness. Verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. It's like if someone were to ask you this week, hey, friend, what is the theme of? Of Second Peter in the New Testament, you might could say the knowledge of Jesus Christ and all that it does and the changes that it brings about within me. But what are some examples, specific examples, preacher, of how knowledge brings about or has with it all that is necessary for life and godliness? That's what Peter says in verse three of chapter one. We'll look at just two examples. Chapter two, verse twenty. Chapter 2, verse 20, here in the discussion of false teachers, we read this. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now notice, in the midst of this description of false teachers leading Christ's people astray, what is it that is the means of coming out of the pollutions of the world in verse 20? What do you see there? Brothers and sisters, what do you see in verse 20? What is the means that the living God uses to cause us to escape the pollutions of the world? It is the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You think on him all of your days. You meditate on him. You make melodies of his word in your heart. And sin will become more and more and more dirty to you. You will hate it more. You will fall into it sometimes. Make no mistake, temptations abound. But as the knowledge of Christ and how he has saved you is something that you savor more and more and more, the pollutions of this world will be, in some sense, harder and harder and harder for you to embrace. And how is it that you've escaped the sin and pollution of the world to begin with? That the Holy Spirit in your heart caused you to see that the message you were hearing with your ears during the preaching of a sermon or during the reading of a track or during a vacation Bible school class or having a discussion on the beach as someone was witnessing to you, that the Holy Spirit caused you to see in your heart that what was being preached to you, namely Christ, was true. And by faith, you received Christ And you, quote, escaped the pollutions of the world. So now how do you avoid those pollutions day by day as a believer? You study Christ. 
You grow in your knowledge and savoring of him. Here's another example. Chapter 3, verses 11 and following. The question again. How is it that knowledge of Christ provides a path to godly living? Peter, look at chapter 3, verses 11 and following. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, boy, we could have a whole sermon tonight on this section of Scripture. What does it mean for all of the planets, the heavens and the earth to pass away and to be dissolved or, depending on your translation, exposed? But we'll avoid discussing all of that to see the larger issue. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, namely at the coming of Christ and judgment, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to what? According to his promise, according to the knowledge of what he has told us, we look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Think about this. We've been promised that Christ is going to return, that judgment is going to come. We are, as verse 12 says, looking for and hastening the coming of that day. As we wait with that in view and we know it to be true because God promised it, what does verse 11 tell us to do with that knowledge? Consider our conduct and godliness. You see, all throughout this book, Peter echoes what he says in these first few verses. That the knowledge of Christ brings grace and peace. But the knowledge of Christ provides all things necessary for us to live godly lives. But as we close, there's at least one other aspect of the knowledge of Christ. And it's in verse 4 of our text. Look there with me. Verse 4 says this. By which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Notice the connection. Knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us what? Promises that we know, that we receive as true. Knowledge. That through these, that is the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, brothers and sisters, what does it mean for you, for me, to be a partaker of the divine nature? Some of you are thinking, I don't know, preacher. What does it mean? Others of you are thinking, What does that mean? Well, let's look at that. First, our third point. The knowledge of Christ brings about grace and peace. The knowledge of Christ brings about all things necessary for life and godliness. And thirdly, the knowledge of Christ changes us. It changes us. Well, What does that mean? Well, let's look at verse 4. Firstly, that phrase, exceedingly great and precious promises. You ever consider that the promises of God are not just promises, but they're exceedingly great? That's what Peter says. They are exceedingly great promises. How are they exceedingly? What do they exceed? Well, they are exceeding all of the promises of the world. World's promises, God's promises. 
God's promises exceed all the promises of the world. They are great. But notice it is through these promises. Again, once more, we know God's promises through Christ. We have knowledge and it brings about an effect. What is the effect? Verse four says through these, that is the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. We know what this does not mean. It does not mean that we become God. But that's an option, isn't it? In English, at least, we read that and we think partakers of the divine nature. I'm going to become divine. But that would be blasphemy. No, it doesn't mean that we become divine. But rather... That by the promises of God, we grow in the attributes of God that are communicable. Listen to the way that the Puritan Matthew Poole discusses this text. He says, quote, We are said to be partakers of the divine nature, not by any communication of the divine essence to us, but by God's impressing upon us and infusing into us Those divine qualities and dispositions, excellent word. Boys and girls, let us learn to write well in our day. Excellent word. Those divine qualities and dispositions, knowledge, righteousness, true holiness, which do express and resemble the perfections of God. The reason I love the word dispositions is it's a perfect way for Poole to describe this text. You don't become God by knowing about Jesus. But through knowledge of Jesus, love of who he is, of having a heart that's been converted because you hear the word and by his spirit you are converted and you rest in him by faith alone. God, through these very promises, does a work in your heart and makes you look more and more and more like the Son, including dispositions, which God alone is the one who is the perfection of these so-called attributes or dispositions. We, Poole continues, are said to be made partakers of this divine nature by the promises of the gospel. Because they are the effectual means of our regeneration in which that divine nature is communicated to us by reasoning of that quickening spirit which accompanies them, works by them, and forms in us the image of that wisdom, righteousness, and holiness of God. You grow in holiness. God is holy. You and I grow in wisdom. God is wise. And it's through the knowledge of Christ that you, as Peter says, becomes part, become partakers of this divine nature. Not that you become divine, but that this knowledge actually changes you. So what have we seen? Well, 2 Peter is a book full of the discussion of the knowledge of Christ. And in our first few verses, it's everywhere. The knowledge of Christ grows us in grace and peace. It is the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of Him that gives us all things necessary that pertain to life and godliness. And it's knowledge of Christ that changes us. 
Think about this. Peter says that it is through these exceedingly great and precious promises. Are the promises of God precious to you? It is through these exceedingly great and precious promises that you become partakers of the divine nature. And we've just discussed what that means and what it doesn't mean. But it's through the promises. How so? How does a promise change you? Let's give some examples outside the book and then some examples from the book. My life is a wreck and I feel alone. Is there a promise of Christ to you as his child? I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Nothing shall separate you, my child, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Another example. It's so hard for me to have assurance of salvation. It's so hard for me to know for sure that Christ really will take me. Is there a promise for this? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. John 6.37 And the one that comes to me, Jesus says what? I will never cast out. Brothers and sisters, we don't have time to mine all of the promises of God. We would be here till next Sunday night if we just went from Genesis to Revelation and looked at the exceedingly great and precious promises of Christ. But let's look at an example or two from this book. Because again, Peter says it's through these promises. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. To those who have obtained like precious faith, With us. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Perhaps the greatest of all promises. That Christ. The righteous one. Laid down his life for sinners. And that God his spirit has granted you faith in Christ. And this faith is precious. And as you have faith in Christ, you are credited with the righteousness of Christ. It's not yours, it's His. But He takes your sin and you are clothed in His righteousness. And this is why, Peter says, you've obtained like precious faith. Notice two things are precious in the first four verses of 2 Peter. The faith and the promises. Well, are are there other promises? Well, yes. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I won't read all 13 verses, but it discusses the second coming. You know the thing that the false teachers were denying? And it says essentially this, that as those false teachers, those scoffers are saying, when will he come? Listen to what he says, picking up in chapter 3, verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. Do not forget what you know, in other words. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. What promise? As some count slackness. 
but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What promise? What promise, Peter? What promise? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Christ has promised that there is a day fixed when he will return, and that changes everything. Do you believe this promise? Because as you believe this promise, and day by day you look for his coming, is it today? Is it today? Is it today? As you look for that promise, it changes you. You grow in a desire to be ready when He comes. You grow in a desire to be seen as godly and holy. You grow in a desire that when King Jesus comes to walk among the fields of your little parcel of this earth, He finds the fields full of fruit for His glory. But it's through this promise that He's coming. You see, if there was no promise that He was coming, why bother? But it's through the promise that you grow in wisdom and righteousness, and holiness, and godliness. It is the very promises of God that are used to change us, and to cause us to image God the way that we would have before the fall. Every last word we believe without a shadow of a doubt. Every last law we keep without a shadow of a doubt. And what was the voice of our enemy? Did God really say? Can you really know? Peter, thousands of years after Eden, just returns us to the garden. What does he say? Knowledge of the Word of God. The living Word and the inscripturated Word. Do you know Christ? friend, as you ought? The answer, of course, is no. But even in the days ahead, savor him, read of him, see him walking through Galilee, study him as he engages people in Judea, in Jerusalem. Read of the messages that his apostles have given to you in the book of Romans, James, John, Read of the letters that Paul writes to these churches of Gentiles, converts. Study and savor the Savior. Because the knowledge of Christ brings about grace and peace. The knowledge of Christ provides everything necessary for us to grow in life and godliness. And the knowledge of Christ literally changes us. I don't know all that Francis Bacon had in mind when he said knowledge is power. And I certainly don't think that that means that we are to, quote, live lives for the reputation and influence of ourselves. But as it relates to following King Jesus, knowledge actually is power. Know him and see him changing you. Let's pray. Almighty God, grow us, we pray, in the knowledge of King Jesus, the one who spread his arms wide for us, the one that gave himself up for us, 
The one who is the express image of the invisible God. The one that shows us in human form the very perfections of the triune God. Press us in, even this week, to study our Savior and to savor each and every moment that we have in gazing at him. In Jesus' name, amen.